Let's take our Bibles. We're going to go to the book of Philippians today. And in Philippians, we find a letter written from an apostle to a specific church. And the theme of this book is joy. But that is the general topic. Everybody wants to be happy. Some people like to be miserable because they want to get back at someone else or they want to pay for the crimes of what they've done. Maybe they're just mad. But the Bible says, No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Everyone wants to be happy, even if it is only eventually. We all eventually want to be happy. And how do I know that? Well, why are you so mad about being miserable? You want to be happy. Nothing wrong with that. And some people make a huge distinction between happiness and joy. And we understand that there is a distinction there, two different words. But the Lord did say, if you, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. It is okay to desire to be happy. And joy, of course is the word that is used in the book of Philippians. But it's more than just, I want to be happy. Now, some of you are old cynics. You've given up on the concept of being happy. In fact, what makes you happy now is being miserable. Amen. How do I know that? It's just, you you see people just kind of wandering around mumbling to themselves. You know, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to tell you what to do. Right, And what's the reason for that? That's just kind of, you know, they figured out a way to bring joy in spite of the fact they don't have any joy. But the Lord does want us to have joy. Joyful people are nice to be around. You ever, you ever think about that? They're nice. There's not a lot of nice people anymore. It's nice to be nice. It's, it's, it is a comforting thing. It is a joyful thing. To be around someone who is joyful. It spreads. It's, it's, it's addicting. But in the book of Philippians, we see God wants us to have fullness of joy. But how do we get it? Joy for a believer is never selfish or self-serving. It is not about making yourself happy. It is found in serving other people through the mind of Christ. Now, it is possible to serve other people without the mind of Christ. What's amazing is religion comes along and says, it's not about me, it's about others. So what happens is I become my own religion. I become my own God. Here's how. It's not about being selfish. It's about serving other people. So that's how I know I'm better than other people because I serve other people. We can take even service to others and turn it into a self-serving religious exercise. So service to others is not me deciding what you need. It's me learning what God says you need And using his mind, allowing the way Christ thinks to become the way that I think about other people. He said, that sounds difficult. No, it's not difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible. There's only one way to do it, and that is to have the mind of Christ. So the theme of Philippians combines the thought of having joy in the Christian life. Imagine being a joyful person. Now, some people are just naturally bubbly. They have a good time. They're always happy. And a lot of times, though, that can hide, if we're not careful, can hide some of the pain. How many comedians have we seen who have decided to tragically end it all? People who make other people laugh, from Robin Williams to Chris Farley. They they have this ability to make other people feel good around them, yet inside They can't make themselves feel good. Having joy is something everyone desires, but it's not just in deciding from now on, I'm going to live for other people because you still have to deal with the old Adamic nature that every person has. 
Philippians is about how to have joy through the mind of Christ. And let's look at verse number two. I'm sorry, chapter two, verse number one. Can you believe I just said chapter two? We've been wandering in the desert for years, Philippians chapter one. But we're crossing over into the promised land. Look at verse one of chapter two. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. The, the phrase, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, is the central theme of chapter 2. Because Philippians is written to instruct us in how to have joy through the mind of Christ. Okay, that's good. Having joy through the mind of Christ. It's not me, it's the mind of Christ. How do I get Here's how we do it. Living in fellowship and in communion with other believers. This is what he wants us to do in order for us to fulfill the joy. To have the joy that we crave and desire. He said, be like-minded. Verse 3, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Now we'll leave off reading there for a moment, but you see how... Living in fellowship and communion with one another as believers requires the humbling of oneself to other people. Forget it. Let's pray and get out of here. That ain't going to happen. I'm sorry. She, (laughs) you don't know her. You don't know him. Forget it. Now, I'm not trying to be trite or or sarcastic here. I'm simply saying this is the crux of what it means to have joy through the mind of Christ. It is getting along with other people the way Jesus got along with other people. Now, he wasn't just the man who, 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 the lowly Galilean and the, the humble carpenter, the meek and mild. Yes, yes, he was that. And a whole lot more in that direction than you and I can imagine. But he was also way over on the other side, full of truth, full of holiness and righteous. And so what what we're looking at here is examples of how to have joy through the mind of Christ by being in fellowship with one another. The first example we went through in chapter 1, look back at chapter 1, verse 3. Paul said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Verse 4, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with what? What's the word? Joy. I am happy to pray for you. I I, I have joy when I pray for you. So Paul's telling us, this is the example. Look at verse 23. As Paul is in prison... He wants to get out, but he said, I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Now notice the word, your furtherance and joy of faith. Verse 26, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Do you see how he is making their joy primary in his life? I want you to be happy. And that's why I say I really don't want to continue with this message. Because, you know, you do realize that when I preach, I have to hear myself. You ever correct your kids? And the Holy Spirit jumps on your head and says, yeah, why don't you ever do that? You know, that's the way it is. Because I recognize as a human that what is being asked of is not fair to me. It's not fair that I am being asked to care more about your joy. Because you know what? I don't. You know whose joy I care about? Let me think. Um, This guy right here. That's who I care about. 
But the step, uh, the illustration is given to us. Here's the Apostle Paul. And he said, I love praying for you. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy it. And he said, the reason why I'm not going to go on to heaven, even though I'm in prison and it's not fun, it's not, you know, a modern prison, even though modern prisons are difficult, from what I've heard, they're nothing like the old time prisons. And Paul said, I'm having a hard time to determine if I should go on to heaven, in heaven, where everything's perfect, or whether I should stay here in prison. And he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to stay here in chains because I can write to you, because I can pray for you, because I can affect change in your life. I can push you further. And so I'm staying here because I want you to have more joy in the Lord. Verse 27. Philippians 1.27, he said, only let your conversations. You see how Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God, God is showing us his character through the writing of Paul. And he said, well, first, I want you to have joy. I'm going to push you forward. But, but let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. Verse 27, do you see it? I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The way that you and I would prove that we have joy in Christ is that we would stand fast in one spirit with one mind. You know why people don't come to church anymore? Because they disagree with something. They either disagree, I'm talking about believers here, they disagree with something the pastor said. They disagree that it's really that important. There are justifications for not coming. There are people with whom they disagree. See, it's always uh, some kind of a disagreement that causes us to not stand fast in one spirit with one mind. And what that means is you can never really experience fullness of joy as a believer. You will spend your life trying to convince yourself and others that you are happy. But you cannot experience fullness of joy as a believer unless you are standing with one mind in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And if you don't believe that, if you're sitting there saying, I don't know about that, you don't have fullness of joy. But you're lying to yourself. It's amazing how many different ideas we get about the church. Well, I like the church because they have stuff for the kids. They have stuff for the kids for what? Well, you know, teach them the Bible and give them, you know, some. Well, why is that important? Well, you know, it's important for them to know about God. Why? So they can know about it and do whatever they want with their lives. Well, no, I mean, it's good for, you know, the kids. They need to know about. Isn't it interesting how we want our kids to be better Christians than we want to be? Okay. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because it's easy for us to have all kinds of ideas. Well, let the little woman go to church. You know, she's into God and all that stuff. Do you not have an eternal soul? Don't you know that in Christ there's either Jew or Greek, there's neither male nor female? You think, you think somehow that Jesus is feminine? Well, I think it's important. You know, she knows more a lot about the Bible than I do. Sorry if every illustration is a southern guy. Forgive me. I don't mean anything by it. Trying to think of some guys from up, you know, up north, perhaps. Isn't it interesting how we all have these different ideas about church? We come because my family goes to that church. Your family didn't die on the cross for you. You, you come because it's important for us to go and have a religious experience. Whoever said that? Why is that important? You see, everything goes back to this. I am an eternal soul created by God, and he has communicated his desire for me to trust his son's death, burial, and resurrection for my salvation eternally. And he has said, follow me. To every man, woman, boy, or girl who trusts Christ, he says, follow me. And as you follow him, his mindset, his desires, his likes and dislikes gradually become yours. So you can say, I'm crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Well, I heard a preacher say this. Well, I, our church used to always do this. And, and isn't that interesting? We all just separate out according to our own experiences when the desire of God himself is that we would stand fast in one spirit with one mind. What mind would that be? The mind of Jesus Christ. Now listen, you can disagree with me and be right. I could disagree with you and be right or wrong. But none of us can disagree with Jesus Christ and be right. How do we possibly get together? We don't get together by deciding that we both like barbecue and, you know, and NBA. We don't get together because we both like the same farmhouse chic. Now, those are all secondary things. And hey, guys, if you're into farmhouse chic, go for it. There's nothing wrong with those things. But that is not what it means to stand fast in one spirit. To have the same hobbies or the same backgrounds or the same likes and dislikes. We are unified in Jesus Christ himself. And what does that mean? It doesn't just mean a bunch of facts that we heard about Jesus. Like, yeah, I've been a Baptist. I've been, you know, I go to all kinds of churches. I like them all. It means coming together under the purpose and the person of Jesus Christ himself. And that's what he's saying. The example of Paul is given here. I am doing, I'm doing what I do because I love Jesus Christ. And I'm going to push you forward. Now watch the example of Christ himself in Ephesians, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter two, verse five. He's pointing us here to the example of Christ himself. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to talk about how, though he was God, he humbled himself. Now, he's not doing us to, to, to instruct us about the deity, although you can find it there, the deity of Christ. He's not giving us this insight so we can think about the cross and the shame of the cross. That is certainly there. The Holy Spirit is pointing to, he's pointing out to us the downward path that Jesus traveled from heaven to earth to hell. He did that voluntarily for you and for me. That's what he's talking about. You see, the only reason why I couldn't get along with you, I couldn't serve you, is because of my pride. I get along with you as long as you do what I want you to do. I'll help her because she's trying to live a good life. I'll help him because he lives up to my standards. But I, and not those people, because they're not doing as many good things as I'm doing. Jesus Christ here is setting us an example of self-denial and sacrifice for the benefit, for the well-being of other people. And we see that the key to genuine joy and happiness is the self-sacrificial life, the willingness to spend and be spent, not for our own advantage, not for our own glory, but for the benefit and well-being of others. So the discussion here in chapter 2 of Jesus' suffering and triumph are set as an example so that we can know how to have the full measure of joy that's available to every man, every woman. Now, this stick with me here. I'm going to go very quickly give you a rundown. Look at verse 1. It's basically about how we can fully benefit from our salvation. Verse 2, how we can produce the maximum amount of joy in the life of other people. Verses 3 and 4, the thought process that leads someone into this depth of Christian experience. Verses 5 to 11, we have the illustration of Christ himself, who lived this life of self-denial. Every moment he's living for the glory of his Father. So we'll go through today and tackle basically verse number 1. Because we have to understand that the Lord expects things of us that we do not expect of ourselves. And he has desires for us. But he is not going to come down and make you do it. The word that begins verse number two is what? Fulfill. Well, I, I don't know how, how. How can I possibly fulfill? Well, verse three. Let nothing be done. Verse four. Look not every man. Verse five. Let this mind. The only way I can possibly have this is if I allow, the only way I can fulfill is if I let, if I 
have the right look if I allow the mind of Christ. But I want you to see, first of all here, before we jump into verse 2, in verse 1 we have resources, resources that provide for the joy of unity. God is not asking us to do what he does not enable us to do. There is provision here that is given before the command is given. You see where he says, fulfill you my joy. That's a command. Do it. Make me happy. Now we think, well, that's the Apostle Paul. And it is. But remember, it is the Holy Spirit who is writing through the Apostle Paul. Really, it is Christ saying, fulfill you my joy. Fill my joy. You know what would make me really happy? You know what would really top off my happiness cup? This is what I want you to do. Complete it. When, when my wife uh, was expecting our first child, there were nights when she would say, you know what I really am craving? Anybody remember the cravings? And she would crave a certain thing, and I would go out, and, and, uh, and, and, she would, uh, and she'd say, I want to get this. And I'd go out and buy it and bring it back, and she was happy. It was great. And it was the least I could do, plus I got to eat some of it too. Right? You know why we do that for our wives? Because we want them to be happy. And, and, and we are like Christ in what we are, when we are seeking to make other people happy. But the most, the first priority, and here's why a lot of Christian families get this wrong. A, a husbands think, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So the number one thing in life is to make my wife happy so that happy wife, happy life. That's good, but it's not the biblical way. The number one person you should be trying to make happy in your life is Jesus Christ. And how many of you realize that sometimes making God happy will not make other people extremely happy? Now, you're not seeking to make people unhappy. You're trying to make God happy, number one. And husbands, let me encourage you and, and, your, and your family uh, you are called to lead your home to worship God. How do you do that? By worshiping God yourself first and foremost, and then encouraging and in, in trying to inspire, not drive and yell, but inspire others. People are looking for leadership, and if you will do that, then they will follow you. What if they don't? You still follow and worship God. You don't worry about it. And if you're not careful, you can make your wife an idol. And that's a dangerous place for, for, you know, no woman wants to be the reason why her husband exists. Not in her heart. She may say that. But what she really wants is for her husband to follow his mission that he has given. That's what she wants. So we have to be careful, husbands, that we don't allow our children because of past experiences or past failures, our children or, or, or our spouse to become the number one person in our lives. It should be Jesus Christ. And we have here provision given to us in order for us to really fulfill the joy of God. Now, there is a truth here. When we say happy wife, and this is a side note just for a moment, when we say happy wife, happy life, let, it, 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 there is a truth there. It is easier to be around your wife when she is happy. Amen? It is easy. Let me ask you this. If you were to make God happy with your life, how would that be for you? Happy God, happy life. Absolutely. If you can make God happy, you will be able to endure the worst of circumstances because God gives grace in the trials. Grace that cannot be purchased anywhere. It's amazing. The provision here is saying in verse number one, if these things are true, if what things are true? If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, if these, these things are true, fill up my joy to the brim. When he says, if these things are true, he's saying in a gracious, kind way, because these things are true. Do you see what he's saying? It's not a question of, I don't know if it's true or not. He's saying, like a mom might say, or parents might say to their child, if we've ever done anything for you, we need you to take out the trash. 
You ever, you ever think that your parents are asking too much and then your, your, your mom or your dad sits down and begins to give you a little bit of accounting as far as the scales of what they've done for you versus what you've done for them? You don't want to go there, kids. Mom always has the ace. I birthed you. Always wins. If you ever get into a, 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 a counting contest with God, as far as what he's done for you versus what you've done for him, you better just keep your mouth shut, right? And so Paul is saying, if these things are true, and, and, and notice, uh, husbands, leaders, uh, moms with kids, notice it's not. He said, you know how much I've done for you. He very sweetly and kindly says, if these things are true, it's a good lesson for us to learn. The basis of Paul's appeal for unity among the believers is this fourfold group of experiences here. The four reminders of their resources, the foundation stones upon which unity can be built. And all of these things are things given from God to the believer. Okay, so he's saying, I'm asking you in verse 2 to have the same mind, to get along with people, and I'm just reminding you, that's going to call that's going to, in verses three and four and following, it's going to be a humbling of oneself to another person. But just remember, from the get-go, I've given you four big things. I gave to you. So when I'm asking you to do something, I'm not asking you to do it in your own strength. I'm asking you to do it based on what I've already given you. Are you following me this morning? Okay. Three people are following. That's all we need, really. Resource number one. Consolation in Christ, if there be any consolation. So the resource number one is consolation in Christ. Consolation is uh, alleviation of grief. Well, who would be uh, grieving? Well, you saw in verse 28, and nothing terrified by your adversaries. To console is to make someone who is sad or disappointed feel better. And consolation is done through words. We talk about comfort food. You can be comforted by food, but consolation is verbal. Consolation is words spoken. In chapter one, people are suffering because their, their mortal bodies are, are living in a troubled world. Uh, they're suffering because sometimes saved people get mistreated by unsaved people, and even sometimes saved people get mistreated by saved people. And so they're in need of consolation, to be consoled. What consoles us? What helps us to continue to be joyful during trials and tribulation? It is the consolation that's found in Christ. I want you to take your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. Luke 2, 25. Luke 2, 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Here is Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus into the temple to have him circumcised, to offer the offerings that were required by the law. And there is an old man here named Simeon, and he has been waiting He's been waiting the right way. He is just and devout. He has the Holy Ghost on him. The Holy Ghost is not ashamed to be identified with him. He's a Holy Ghost. He desires to be around those who are holy. And so Simeon fills those qualifications. And he is waiting for something. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's not waiting for another book to be written by a prophet. He's not waiting for just a new kingdom to be built. He's not waiting simply for the overthrow of the Roman government. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. What might that be? Look at verse 26. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. 
And he came by the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law. Then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He was waiting for Christ, the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit is called by Jesus the Comforter. The Holy Spirit consoles, but Christ is the consolation by which the Holy Spirit consoles. The Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, he will not speak of himself. But he will show, he will speak of Christ. You know the greatest consolation anyone has ever heard? That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ, not a church. Not baptism, not your religious works, Christ himself. You were all looking for the perfect man. We're all looking for that human, that, that one being that is the sum of all wisdom. And we're disappointed time and time and time again. But there's one who is never disappointed. And that is the Christ himself, the consolation. The Holy Spirit is the physician, but Christ is the medicine that is applied. He is the one that heals the wounds. It is by applying the ointment of Christ, the name of Christ, the grace of Christ in our lives. Jesus himself. He is the consolation. Let me ask you this question. Do you, have you experienced the consolation that's found in Christ? Have you experienced Christ himself. Do you know you're going to heaven when you die? Are you 100% sure? Why would God go to the great lengths of sending his son to the cross to die a horrible death and be buried? And then to rise again from the dead. Why would he go to all that trouble and still ask you to do something to get yourself to heaven? Doesn't make any sense. The bumper sticker asked the question very well. If you could earn it, why did he die? I ask you a question. Do you know for sure that you are saved? You know, I know I'm saved. And I rarely have any doubts about that. I don't know that I've had very many doubts in my life. Why? Not because I'm such a good person. But I can read English. He said, he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. That's why I know I'm going to heaven. Not because of me, but because of him. And I can't let any church, I can't let any dogma, any practice of any believer or a non-believer come along and say, well, here's something to add. Here's how you can know. I would never say, I know I'm going to heaven. Why not? What if, what if God said, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish? If he said, by grace are ye saved through faith and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. If God said, I'll give you a gift and you can know 100% sure that you have salvation, wouldn't it be a smack in the face to God to say, oh no, you can't know that? Why would religion ever say that? The only thing I can think of is money and pride. Why anyone would ever come along and say that Jesus Christ is not enough to take you to heaven. It makes no sense. He's the only one that, he, I mean, he made heaven. He came from heaven. He was killed by mankind. He rose in his own power and he went back and he said, I'll take you with me if you want to go. Why would I believe you and your religion over what he said? He made it very clear. You can know for sure you're going to heaven. Well, I don't know for sure. I don't feel so. Listen, if you're raised in church and sometimes, uh, you know, you, you, you hear these testimonies of people that got saved. You know, they were riding a Harley, doing drugs and drinking beer all at the same time. And you think, well, I didn't come out of that life. So how could I know? They did not get saved because they stopped riding a Harley. Some of you can say amen right there. They didn't get saved because they stopped their drinking. They didn't get saved because they stopped doing drugs and stopped running around on their wife if they had one. They didn't get saved because of that. Those were the things they were trusting in before they came to Christ. When they came to Christ, they said, I don't need none of that. I'm trusting him alone. You don't get saved by stopping your sin. You get saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? 
Because I've met a lot of Christians and none of them have stopped their sin completely. (laughs) It's possible for you to know 100% sure you're going to heaven. Not because you're a Lutheran, Baptist, Catholic, Seventh-day Adventist, you name it. No, because with the words of God himself in the Bible, he said, I want to give you eternal life. You can know 100% sure. Christian, let me ask you this. If Jesus Christ is enough to take you out of the flames of hell and put you in heaven, in the presence of God himself, don't you think he'd be enough to console you in your life? You know, one of the reasons why we don't get along with other people, because we don't really get along with ourselves very well. We have a hard time with ourselves. We're upset. You know, you know, we know why we get hangry, angry when we're hungry. It is because there's a problem inside, and because of the problem inside, we make problems on the outside. You know the reason why there's problems in churches, because there's problems internally in the individual believers. You know why there's a problem in the home, because there's a problem in dad or mom or the kids internally, they have not been consoled by Christ. There's no way for you to have the same mind. There's no way for you to have the unity of the Spirit unless you've experienced consolation in Christ. Have you experienced the consolation of Christ? Number two, he says there's another resource, the comfort of love. Now, comfort and consolation are similar, but I want you to see the comfort of love. There's consolation in Christ himself, but then there's the comfort of love. And that is that love produces comfort. When a little boy falls and scrapes his knee, he runs to mom, and and, and mom's love provides the comfort. Does it take the pain away because mom kisses him? Technically not. But what does it do? It comforts the little boy to where he is able to endure in spite of the pain. When a believer suffers, the pain of losing a loved one or the pain of a a broken relationship or the pain of a body that's breaking down, you can be comforted by the love of God. It may not take away the pain. But it is a comfort to know that you are loved of a God who will never leave you nor forsake you. A God who has uh, underneath are the everlasting arms. A God who said that goodness and mercy are going to follow you all the days of your life. Yeah, you have pain and suffering, but you can have the comfort of love. You know, one of the reasons for a lack of unity in a home, in a church, in a business is that there is a lack of love. Love which comforts. I don't know what kind of home you were raised in, but if you were raised in a situation where when you have a pain, a hurt, people said, shut up, deal with it. That hurts, doesn't it? It hurts when people don't care about how you feel. They say, toughen up. Someone said that hurt people hurt people. Now, I understand there's a balance there. Every little thing in life, you can't restructure the universe around what you're going through. But, but, but it is important for us to recognize that people do have pain. And what is comforting? If you notice that word, come fort. Yes, fort. To strengthen. To, to, it's a structure. You're, you're building a structure in that person's heart. You're strengthening them against the onslaught of pain and suffering they're going through. The comfort of love strengthens the heart. It gives courage in the heart. It says you can continue on. You see, these are the resources that we already have experienced. Because if you go back and think about it, from the time you met Christ, how many times have you messed up? How many of you times have stood up to bat and whiffed? And, and, and then sometimes when you're, to use the metaphor, sometimes you throw the bat and hit somebody else in the head. Unintentionally. And how many times through those brokenhearted experiences where you've messed up, someone has come along and said, it's okay. God still loves you. I still love you. 
I want to be there. I don't know about you. I'm so grateful for the forgiveness that other believers have expressed toward me. I wouldn't be here today standing in front of you without that. And the Philippian believers had experienced that. You and I have experienced it. It's the foundation stone of unity. The comfort of love. Number three. He says the fellowship of the Spirit. Comradeship. Friendliness. You, you, ever, you, ever, have a, you ever take a road trip with friends? Have you ever done that? Or has it been all enemies that you've taken road trips with? Amen. That, that, that's, a, that's a different type of road trip. Um, but, you know, it's the worst, kind of. It's the worst. I mean, you're locked in a car for 10 hours with somebody you can't stand. That's the worst. But, but when, you, when you get out on the, on the road, and the open road is before you, and you're heading out, and the sun's shining, and, and, and you've got a full tank of gas, and here we go. It's going to be fun. And you don't have any real major agenda. It's just open-ended. And you, get a, and you start talking, and you find yourself talking about, you know, the kind of wagon you had when you were a kid. And you, you talk about, you know, how you always wanted to be an astronaut. You know, you just kind of open up your heart, and you're talking about these things you would not have. You know, there, what's the purpose? The purpose is not just to share with one another. If you were sitting in an office talking about these things across from one another, it would be really awkward. But because you're both going somewhere with the same idea in mind, camaraderie develops. And the camaraderie that's important in a church, in a home, is not just camaraderie because we like each other. It's fellowship of the Spirit. Why are we in this car on a road trip? Because we have been invited to it by the Spirit of God. And we're in this car and we're moving, of course, according to the speed limit. And we're, we're having fun. We find out, you know what? I'm in this thing for the same reason that you're in this thing for. We can actually have camaraderie. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. But the Holy Spirit, this is interesting, compared to, uh, contrasted with popular opinion, the Holy Spirit did not come to live within you so that you could figure out your life. So that you could learn how to manipulate other people or, or become financially wealthy. Those are not the reasons the Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit did not come in you so that you could make a name for yourself. He came to live within you and within me so that we could, through him and by him, we could love other people and comfort other people and minister to others and bless others. How do you enjoy fellowship with the indwelling spirit? By being on board with his agenda. What does he want from my life? You see, sometimes religion tells us that we're saved, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, we're locked in. This is a time capsule that God will open in heaven someday. And there's a truth in that. But since I'm saved, man, just keep my nose clean till Jesus comes. That's not the fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship of the Spirit is to say, I've been bought with a price, and therefore I have the privilege of glorifying God in my body and in my spirit, which are God's. Now, I like what he likes. You see, we can learn to agree to disagree with one another. And by the way, it's not even really a good statement. I, I, I can't go into it right now. But this idea that, well, you're maybe right, maybe I'm right, and we'll just not talk about it. A lot of Christians have taken that pose with the Holy Spirit. You got stuff you want to do. I mean, I know it's spiritual and it's like highfalutin and all that. It's good stuff. But I've kind of got a reality life that I live. I'm just thankful to be saved, man. I'm, listen, dog, I'm just glad to be in. And Holy Spirit, I know you have big plans and stuff, and that's good. Man, I hope you, preacher boys get that. Man, I hope somebody goes to Bible school. I hope somebody really gets on fire because you know me, Lord. I'm no. What are you doing? If you're, if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit of God, the same Holy Spirit that was in Jesus Christ himself. Every believer has the same spirit. Same spirit. Did that help at all? Listen, sometimes we think, well, I have my own particular take on Christianity. This is how I was raised 
This is what my parents did. This is the way. These are some of the things I've seen. Listen, we all have that, don't we? No wonder we have trouble getting along. Because we don't have the fellowship of the spirit. We have the fellowship of our shared experiences. And I'm sorry, if you didn't grow up like I do, I look down on you. You don't grow up the way I did. You look down on me. We can never get along. It's not the shared human experiences that binds us together in the church. It is the fellowship of the spirit of God himself. That is how we get along. I humble myself to the God who lives within me. You humble yourself to the God who lives within you. And if it's the the God of the Bible, guess what? We're going to be worshiping the same God. And we're going to come together naturally, which should tell us something when we have a hard time getting along with other believers. It is not because of Christ. It is because of our flesh. It's not because of what Christ said. It's not because of who he is and what his spirit has done in our lives. It's because of some little chunk of humanity that just is stubborn and won't be leveraged out. He said, if you have experienced these foundation things, number three was the fellowship of the spirit. Number four is, the, is, is bowels and mercy. He said, if any bowels and mercies. Now, bowels today are just not for polite company. But he's really talking here about feelings. The, the Harvard Medical School has a, uh, a paper they put out called The Gut-Brain Connection. And in that, they propose that the brain has a direct effect on the stomach and intestines, and they have linked anxiety to stomach problems and vice versa. That's why we talk about having gut-wrenching experiences and having butterflies in our stomach. Or as some people say, I, had, I have a pit in my stomach. <laughs> Forgive me. The, those expressions are used for a reason. Because the gastrointestinal tract is literally, not just figuratively, literally sensitive to emotion. Anger, sadness, elation, all of these can, those, those feelings trigger symptoms in our gut. So it's kind of, it's interesting how sometimes we look at the Bible and say, well, don't get mad at God. He's talking figuratively. Maybe he's talking more literally than we realize. And it just takes a while for science to catch up. But the bowels and mercies, he's talking here about feelings that Christ has. If you look back in Philippians chapter 1, look at verse number 8. Philippians 1.8. We're going to land the plane here. Don't worry. Hang in there. Philippians 1.8, for God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Those are the inner feelings of Christ. We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Christ has feelings. Those inner feelings are the bowels of Christ. And Paul is saying here, if you have experienced any bowels and mercies, Because as Paul grew closer to Christ, the feelings that Christ has for others became his feelings. As we live in our Christian life, we don't try to become more empathetic. We have to, and this is hard for some of us, we're more sympathetic. Some of us are less sympathetic. But it's, it's not a matter of what our flesh is. It's a matter of yielding ourselves to Christ and what his feelings are. Lord, I don't have those feelings for people. Will you give me your feelings? Will you teach me how to feel like you feel? Is Christ in you? Then technically, his feelings are in you. You don't have to work them up. You have to read the word of God and yield to what he says about himself. Lord, I don't feel it. But I'm not saved by my feelings. And he said, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. I'm not going to walk in Christ by my feelings. I'm going to yield to your feelings. You know, it's a step of faith for you to care about other believers the way Christ does. Because guess what? In my flesh, I don't. Some people look to be empathetic or sympathetic. And sometimes you can even use that as manipulation to get what you want out of people. And some of us say, well, I'll never do that, so I don't care about anybody. 
No, we're not talking about uh, becoming a better human. We're talking about yielding ourselves to the better being that is inside of us, Jesus Christ. And he said, if you have experienced this, we all have experienced it. We all have. Why? Because Jesus Christ has feelings towards us. We've experienced the bowels and mercies of Christ himself. The bowels are the emotional responders. How can I, from my inner man, respond with the feelings of Jesus Christ and make it possible? Here's how I do it. By following from my heart the example that was set here by the Lord Jesus when he left heaven's glory and he came to this earth to lay down his life for others. When that is my attitude and my spirit, I will be full of joy. What what does God want me to do with my life? I'm really thinking about it. I'm not sure. I'm kind of unclear. Here's what you should do. You should read Philippians chapter 2, and you should follow that example that Christ gave. You should stop thinking about your life as your life and recognize that Christ's life is in you already. And every day you have a choice whether to choose what he wants you to do with your life or what you want to do with your life. And you can come to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't really feel the things I'm supposed to feel and I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to listen to your voice. I'm going to read my Bible every day. You ought to read your Bible every day. And I'm going to pray. You ought to pray every day and say, Lord, I am surrendering my desires on the altar. I want your spirit to guide me and lead me. The resources for fullness of joy are right there. Consolation in Christ. If you've experienced the consolation, you've been consoled by Christ, if you've ever been comforted by love that comes from God, if you've ever had camaraderie with the Spirit, will you say, you know what, I like what the Spirit wants to do, and I'm on board with that. I want to do what the Spirit wants. If you've ever had godly feelings, fulfill you my joy, that you be like-minded. What could be standing in the way of your fullness of joy? Well, the Holy Spirit tells us it's because you're not unified with other believers. And you're not unified with them because you've forgotten all of the things, the benefits, the resources that God has given you. He hasn't given those to you for your own purpose. He's given those resources to you to give them to others. And you can do it because Christ did it. Let's bow our heads in prayer.